And join me in Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. All right. Well, let me begin this way. Um, Number one, what you're benefited with today, if you have a Bible, is the revelation of reality. This is the way it is. Not the way that you think it is. This is God's revelation to you to enable you to know the way the world really is. Everything that matters, that's important to know about, God has spoken about. You felt it if you were in church this morning with uh, Phil Johnson, the relevance of a revelation that is centuries old. Different people group, different context, but same immutable truth that is meant to encourage, inspire. It is meant to direct and guide. It is meant to challenge and convict and transform. It is meant to minister to your heart and give you direction Not because you think it is that way, but because God has said it is that way. That's a blessing. Can you say amen to that? We have the Bible. And what we're about to talk about today is the revelation of reality on why people who don't want to often do get into moral trouble. I've entitled this, Why Good People Do Bad Things. And I open this with this statement. It's a conviction. Good people, and I mean good people, meaning Christian people, have been transformed because there's none good, not one, Romans chapter 3. I'm not arguing just a person. I'm talking about changed by grace, imputed with the righteousness of Christ, a new creation. I've been transformed by the inside out. We read, Tom read that very, uh, Tom Patton this morning read that very convicting passage, if we have the seed of God in us, the pattern of our life is not sinning. There's a motivation to please the one who changed us. But why do good people do bad things, transformed by grace, saved by the work of Jesus Christ? Good people who do bad things rarely intend to, but they do. And so will I, and so will you, without the application of biblical wisdom. There is within us a Romans 7 reality. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I can do. Good people who do bad things rarely intend to, but they do. And so today, I want to offer you a biblical paradigm, an inspired revelation from King Solomon, a father, to his son, endeavoring to communicate how to stay out of trouble, how to prevent it, and how to discern the path that results in catastrophic loss. Proverbs chapter 7, it's a morality play. I want to say a couple of more things, not because I want to motivate you, but hopefully I want to inspire you to think a particular way. And this is a second conviction. And that is that the incidence and impact of moral failure among pastors, parents, and spiritual leaders 
is killing the next generation. The incidence and impact of moral failure among Christians diminishes and destroys our credibility and our believability. Somehow the world thinks that if we're a Christian, we ought to behave like a Christian. That the morality that we promote and profess and express is consistent with biblical Christianity. And when we fumble the ball morally, we undermine the credibility and the claims that we make, however true those claims may be. We must be victorious as a pattern of life in the greatest battle on the planet. And it is not what's going on in the Ukraine or any other war theater of the world. The greatest battle is the battle for virtue and integrity. Nobility, integrity, biblical Christianity lived out in moral fidelity is the greatest battle of all. And good people value that. But good people do bad things, even if they don't intend to. This passage is meant to help you to prevent moral compromise and to understand the path to it. The thing I've heard most often over my 40 years plus of pastoral ministry is I never thought this could happen to me. Because nobody, and I've married scores of people, I've counseled and coached primarily scores of couples, nobody ever says, I want to betray my promise, compromise my character, and explode and damage my world. Nobody says when they're sitting in front of me saying, we'd like to get married, Pastor Harry, will you marry us? Nobody says, we're going to do this for a few years, and then I'm going to explode it. I'm going to love her for a while, and then I'm going to pick somebody else to demonstrate my interest in. Nobody says I'm going to raise a family or invest in a family, and then I'm going to cause my children to hate me and hate the things I represent because of choices that you make that are catastrophic morally. Somehow children think we ought to live out what we profess to believe especially as it relates to moral integrity. Good people who do bad things rarely intend to, but they will, and so will I, unless you apply biblical wisdom and you discern the patterns of failure that are prone to us in our fallen humanity. That's the purpose of this time together. All right, let's look at it. Proverbs chapter 7. And listen, I, I have taught this in two and three sessions. We have one. So this is a high-speed highlight. There's so much, and maybe I should say it at the beginning. If there's a passage you ought to master, it is this one as it relates to preventing moral failure. If there's a passage that you ought to teach your sons and daughters, it's this passage. It is pregnant and rich with with truth and principle, and it is designed as a revelation of reality to help you be successful in a critical category that affects us all. 
a morality play, graphic ways to discern steps to moral failure and why people fall, the reasons good people do bad things. I'm going to give you a number of them, and we're going to make some what I'm going to call life-saving observations, because this is a text that is a played-out picture. We're going to look at something vivid and graphic, and we're going to draw out by observation life saving observations and life-defining resolutions. My hope is that you'll leave here with convictions, compelling convictions. Convictions are compelling beliefs. They affect the way you live. One of the dangers at Grace Church is you can learn things and not live those things. The goal of the truth is to be lived out. Here's only deceive themselves. It's the effectual doing of the Word of God that brings blessing and prosperity. My hope today is these observations will produce convictions that you'll apply even today. Why do good people do bad things? Number one, because they are weak in the Word. They are weak In the Word of God, they neglect the truth of God's revelation. The first five verses I'm going to call the prevention of moral compromise. Follow with me. My son, you're going to see this word three times, keep. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. Now, just look up for a minute. When the Father says, my teaching, my commandments, He's not saying Dad's rules about life. He's talking about God's commandments and God's teaching entrusted to Him to be stewarded to His children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, God tells parents, train your children in the truth. Put it over the doorway. Talk about it when they get home. As you're walking on the way, you are the steward and the tool of disseminating biblical truth. So when Solomon's talking about commandments and teaching, he's not talking about Solomon's ideas. He's talking about God's revelation to be disseminated as a father to his children, because it's the truth of God's Word that's transformative. That is the revelation of reality. So he says, keep my words, the words of God given through me. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. My teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Call understanding your intimate friend. Now watch verse 5. That they, the words, the commandments, the wisdom that comes from the words, the commandments, and the teaching, that they may keep you from the adulteress, that's the immoral woman, from the foreigner. The adulteress here has the idea of someone, it's blatantly, someone who is sexually immoral, and the foreigner has to do with the culturally immoral person. Their, their culture is foreign to the covenant people of God, and that's the world you live in. You live in a sexualized culture where if I gave you the latest statistics, which are 
trending to nearly 90% of the people between the ages of 18 and 40 who involve themselves in sexual immorality, it's off the chart. 57% of men will be immoral, married men. 54% of married women will be immoral. 41% husband and wife will be both immoral. And 80-plus percent of those not married who will engage in outside of marriage sexual activity. That's the world we live in. That is a foreign-to-God culture where there are no boundaries, there's no inhibitions, there's no restrictions. That's the woman who's the foreigner who flatters with her words. She's just culturally immoral. She has no standards. She's not a part of the covenant people of God. They will keep you. The words, the teaching, the commandment, the wisdom, the understanding that is derived from it, they will keep you. The word keep in verse 5, it's used this way. It'll protect you. It'll guard you like sentries outside your door, like a paid police sentry stationed outside. They will keep you. They'll protect you. They will prevent you from moral failure. The word, how does it do that? Here it is. They will, if you keep my words, the word keep in verse 1, keep my words, treasure my commandments within you. Keep in that verse, verse 1, how do you achieve the benefit of the word of God? You memorize it. You treasure it. You store it in your heart. Listen, memorization is not only for Awana or, or uh, adventure clubs or generations of grace. It's not just for young people to learn Bible verses to get a star or a badge or an award. The Word of God is to be stored in you, Psalm 119, so that you do not sin against God. The Bible is to be kept, treasured, and stored. That's how the word keep is meant in verse 1. It has to do with used of Joseph storing grain before the time of famine. That's how you need to think of biblical memorization. You're storing resources for when you need those resources. I call Bible memorization cash in your wallet. You never know when you're going to need it. But when you need it, you better have it. And the Word of God in you, and the people who, good people, do bad things, they're weak in the Word because, one, they neglect it because they fail to memorize it. They don't store it. Number two, verse two, they don't apply it. Keep is used in a different way, nuance-wise, in verse two. Apply my commandments. Keep my commandments and live. Live it out. Apply it. It's one thing to know it and to memorize it. It's another thing to know it and do it. Good people do bad things, know stuff, perhaps, but they don't live that stuff. Number three, verse two, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, literally the pupil of your eye. They fail to prioritize and treat the teaching, the commandment, the revelation memorized to protect it as precious. Pupil of the eye is a Hebrew idiom designed to say, treating it as if it's precious and like the the pupil of your eye, it is to be protected. Listen, if you've ever injured your eyes, which I have, 
hammer on a hammer, trying to build a little stable for my horse-infatuated wife. One of the ways you demonstrate love is you go out and you do what ranch hands do, and horses need stables, and Harry was committed to building a stable. Did you know that the main or the number one way eyes get injured is when you take a metal hammer and bang a metal hammer? I turned the hammer, the call side, to the post, and I was just tapping. Fragment of metal penetrates the right eye. I didn't feel anything. What I saw was like a waterfall. Now, let me tell you what happened because of that. Safety glasses everywhere. (laughs) You know why? This is precious. This is to be protected. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God uses the pupil of the eye to describe His love for Jacob. I protect them as the apple of my eye, like a a mother eagle fluffing over the nest of her young, protecting and caring for them. The third thing people who fail, what they fail to do is they don't treat and protect the words of God, the teaching of God, as precious. They don't protect time with it. They don't protect it as if it's valuable. They'll talk about it on Sunday and may not talk about it again until next Sunday or until the small group. The person who is morally safe, protected, is a person who protects and treats as precious the words of God. They memorize those words, they apply those words, and they protect time with those words. They treat those words as the apple of their eye. Number four, they rehearse those words. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Bind. It's like tying a little string around your finger to remind you. It's putting it in a place where you see it and rehearse it. You know why? Because as a Christian, we're prone to forget. Once upon a time, I was a private pilot. Before you would fly your plane, you had a checklist. You went through that pre-flight checklist every single time you flew. There was a blue angel who went down not too long ago, lost his life because somebody didn't check one of the controls. Bind it has the idea of consistently rehearsing it and remembering to Think about it over and over. You feel this in chapter 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck like, like a necklace. Why? Because every time you look in the mirror, every time you look down, you'll see it, which will provoke a memory about it. You won't forget it. Good people who do bad things fail to memorize the Word of God, they fail to apply the Word of God, they fail to prioritize the Word of God, and they fail to rehearse the Word of God. And finally, number five, they fail to develop a relationship with the Word of God. Verse four, say to wisdom, wisdom is what comes from the truth revealed in God's Word. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, you're a family member. We're close. 
and say to understanding, which comes from wisdom and comes from the truth, you're my intimate friend. You have a relationship with it. I bought this Bible in 1980 in New York City. I'm having the hardest time going with the better translation called the LSB. This is the 1977 NASB. It was updated in 1995. I don't have that one either. I do own the LSB. I have yet to carry it to church. You know why? This is my Bible. This is my friend. We've been together a long time. This is a family member. That's the relationship you need to have with your Bible. Not because you put it under your pillow and try to learn it by osmosis, (laughs) but because every day it's your companion. I have a personal friend who coaches football at the University of Nebraska. He's in his 12th Bible because he carries it everywhere. I said, Ron, why do you do that? He said, because I am prone to forget who I am and what I need to be thinking about. We had him out at Masters to speak to our student-athletes and coaches, and he and I went to the weight room. He lifted, I watched. <laughs> it's humbling. <laughs> you know what he carried to the weight room? His Bible. It was purple. This is a football coach. I said, Ron, why are you carrying a purple Bible? He said, when the lady told me that it looked good. I said, why are you carrying it to the weight room? He said, because I carry it everywhere I go. You know, it would be good for some of us to carry our Bibles everywhere we go. It reminds us of who we are and what God desires. Good people who do bad things, let me say it one more time, they are weak in the Word of God because they don't memorize it, they don't apply it, they don't protect and treat it as precious. They don't rehearse its truth, and they don't build a relationship with it that's like an intimate companion. And here's the promise, and I didn't say it. God did. This is the reality. They will keep you. They will protect you. See, the key to moral fidelity is saying yes to the things of God before you have to say no to the things of the flesh. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The Word of God is preventative medicine. Why? Because it satisfies. That's why Job said, I desire your Word more than my necessary food. It's why David said, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom, steak and lobster tail. Or in my case, Krispy Kremes. My soul is satisfied as with the richest of food when I meditate on thee in the night watches. Now, he said that when he was running from Absalom in a cave, Psalm 63, where in a dry and weary land where there was no water, it wasn't because the circumstances were good that his soul was satisfied. It's because he had access to truth that nourished his heart. I'm going to give you a proverb that you ought to write down. Proverbs 27, 7. The sated man, you know what sated mean? Saturated. I've eaten so much Thanksgiving food that when you bring out dessert, it's repulsive. Now, that's a hard place to get to, but that's sated, sated, satiated. 
the sated man, the full to the brim man. Listen to this. Loathes honey. Honey is the most taste. That is Krispy Kreme. What will it take for me to loathe Krispy Kremes? I've got to have the food right about here. So full that another bite is beyond my intake capacity. The sated man loathes honey. But to the famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Listen to me. People who aren't soul satisfied on the Word of God, you want to talk about soul food. It's not somewhere in the South and Southern cook it. It is the soul food of the Spirit of God in the Word of God that satisfies your soul. Because hungry people will eat. It's interesting. Proverbs chapter 5 says the way you stay out of moral trouble is you drink water from your own cistern. You rejoice in the wife of your youth. You're intoxicated with her love. You rejoice in your affection of your spouse. A healthy marriage is a satisfying prevention. It's an alternative that is designed by God to truly satisfy and fulfill. And a healthy soul satisfied in the Word of God is a preventative against the hunger that will drive you to make choices where any bitter thing is sweet. Listen, if you've not eaten that meal, you go to Whole Foods, even the rice cakes look good. (laughs) Because you're hungry. Hungry people eat. The reason the Word of God is so critical is a satisfied soul is a preventative because you're not hungry. You're sated in the things that matter. And a healthy marriage and a healthy soul is a guarantee of safety when it comes to moral fidelity. You say, well, I'm a single person. I don't have somebody to share my life with. Okay, you have the Word of God until God, if it's His will, gives you the person to share your life with. And everybody knows if you're married, every day is not a banner day in your home. People get sick. People get frustrated. People do human depraved things and injure one another, and you're going to live life without an asset designed to satisfy, and you better have satisfaction in the Lord, or you're an accident looking for a place to happen. And did I say it? Prevention is worth a pound of cure. The Word of God is the preventative medicine. It'll protect you. It'll also warn you. Psalm 19 says it's like honey. Honey from the honeycomb, it satisfies. It's like gold, refined gold. It's incredibly valuable. And it also warns. It warns the servant of God about potential danger. Listen, what is a warning worth if the bridge is out ahead? If some terrorist is going to damage our church today or even the building in the room we're sitting in, what would a warning be worth? It would be priceless. That's what the Word of God does. It warns. It is a revelation from heaven. And then listen, J.I. Packer said it. A sensitized conscience is one of the greatest possessions you will have. Because it is the warning mechanism, the law of God written in your heart, stimulated by the law of God written in His Word 
that you're rehearsing and you're memorizing and you're living and you're, you're remembering and building a relationship with, it will sound when danger is present. Good people who do bad things neglect the words of God. The Word of God, John 17, 17, sanctifies. Sanctify them with your truth, Jesus prayed. Your Word is truth. You know what sanctify is? Cleanse. Cleanse their soul. Cleanse their mind. The Word of God has a bathing quality. Listen, one of the great benefits of being a teacher of the Bible is I spend a lot of time in it, so I have something to say when I have to say it. I have to study it. The more you study it, the more you marinate in it, the more you saturate in it, the cleaner your mind and your heart will be. The Word of God has a cleansing reality, it has a satisfying reality, and it has a warning ability. They will keep you from the adulteress. They will keep you from the culturally immoral, having no clue about the the requirements of God and the standards of God. They'll protect you. Prevention is the first priority. I would rather prevent the problem than have to deal with it. Can you say amen to that? Good people do bad things. Neglect the Word of God. And so you're saying, Harry, no wonder it takes you two sessions to teach this. Here we go. Now here's a shift in gears. This is the path. He's going to, the, the wise father is going to give a vivid graphic illustration. He's going to use a subject, a naive young man, a simple man, as an illustration of how moral failure happens. He's going to tell his son a picture. He's going to color it out with words. This is how it goes down. And I want to extract some principles that come from this as a way to instruct you the steps to moral compromise. And the first takeaway is this. The thing is, am I weak in the Word? The resolution or the conviction is, I will not neglect the Word of God. And listen, if you're not memorizing and you're not doing the things we just talked about, you're vulnerable. I don't care who you are, whether you're the teacher today or the person sitting in the front row or the back row. So the question to ask is, do I treasure the truth? Do I bathe in the Bible? Am I listening to its warnings? Why do good people do bad things? Number two, they fail to learn lessons from life. Watch what wisdom does, this wise father that I'm going to argue unwise moral failures don't do. Verse 6, for at the window of my house, I looked out, key words, through my lattice. That's the protective covering of the window. You, You could see through it. I looked out and I saw. Do you see that? Verse 6, I saw. I just want to stop right there. Good people who do bad things fail to learn lessons from others in life. They're like bugs who go to the bug light. They watch somebody sizzle, and they go into the bug light too. Good people who do bad things don't learn from people who have done bad things. Listen, the school of hard knocks is not the way to get an education. 
How many of you know somebody, and don't raise your hand, you know somebody who has morally fumbled the ball? You should learn from them. Every person I coach or counsel that fumbles the ball morally, one of the questions to be asked is, how did this happen? Because guaranteed, you don't want to be in the position you're in. Your marriage is threatened. Your children don't respect you. You may lose your job. You may lose your opportunity. Your life has been damaged. How did that happen? Because you didn't get up one day and go, hey, I think I'm going to blow up my life. So you ask the question, and you'll get some consistent thematic answers. Learn from those answers. Good people do bad things. Don't learn lessons from others. Look over at Proverbs chapter 24. I'll just show you this in another biblical context, this whole idea of generating insight from what you see. See, you not only ought to meditate on the Word of God, you ought to meditate on the realities of life that you can observe and relate to the Word of God. Verse 30, Proverbs 24, I passed by, says wisdom, the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles, its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. It was in disrepair. Now watch verse 32. When I saw... I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction. Now, did he live that? No. He observed that and derived benefit from what he saw. And here's the proverb, 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Good people who do bad things fail to learn lessons from life. Ask yourself, am I learning... Am I asking and learning? Am I observing and resolving? Or am I ignoring? Am I vulnerable because I can't discern the realities that can occur? And I can learn that from someone else's failure. It's not I'm rejoicing in their failure. I'm leveraging that failure. I drove a car off into a canyon up in Aliso Canyon and outside of Agton, 150 feet down to the bottom. It was late at night. I, I drove the car off the road. Jesus took the wheel. Here I am. It was surreal. It was really a non-event car. It didn't roll. I just totaled it. It was a rear engine car. My son, who was with me in another vehicle, came back, found me standing by the road, and I pointed to my car down in the ravine. I left the lights on so he could see it. <laughs> he took me home, and he made me watch six YouTube videos on lifting the throttle in a corner in a rear-engine car. And in every case, and this is racetrack videos of this car In every case, when the driver lifted, the car spun out, and he went off the road. I said, Parker, this would have been good to know before I lifted. (laughs) Let me tell you what. You need to watch human YouTube realities so you can learn, so you don't do things that others have done to catastrophic consequence. There are themes. Learn them. Look through the lattice of life and derive benefit. Number three, why do good people do bad things? Because they are not resolved for righteousness. Key words, resolved. 
Another way to say it, they have not cultivated an established non-negotiable conviction. Go back to Proverbs chapter 7, if you're not already back there, and notice the subject of this morality play. And I saw among the, to see it, the naive. Some of your Bibles will say simple. Let me tell you what this isn't. Dumb, stupid, can't think, ignorant, or retarded. It has nothing to do with intellectual capacity. The Hebrew word naive, simple, is somebody, listen to me, who is morally immature. They're not dumb, but they are, here's the key, the the Hebrew word literally is open door. They are an open door. They haven't made up their mind. They haven't closed the door on convictions. They're open-minded. They haven't decided. They haven't decided in advance. The door is open morally. When I was in seminary, Dr. Jerry Falwell was uh, speaking in chapel, and uh, he gave this illustration, or he gave this statement to the seminarians in the chapel, and I've never forgotten it. He said, guys... If you're going down the road in a torrential rainstorm and her car is broken down, you do not stop. You drive to town, you buy an umbrella, you come back, and you throw it out the window. (laughs) Because you never put yourself in a position where you are vulnerable to failure. Convictions are things you decide in advance. I won't go to that party. I won't go to that town. I won't drive with a woman, not my wife, without somebody else in the car. I don't care if it's a mile up the road. I'm not hitching a ride with anybody who's not my wife without a chaperone. I'm not going to eat a meal with some woman, not my wife. There are things that have decided, I'm going to have a window in every door I work in. You come to the Master's University where I serve, you come to Student Life, you come to Campus Pastor's Office, and you will see a glass door from top to bottom. Why is that there? Because I want to see what's going on in the secretary's area? No, I want people to see me. That's a conviction. I'm not going to be in a room or I'm not going to be at the church when my secretary is working and I'm studying and we're the only people there. No way, no how. Somebody has to leave. That's a decide in advance decision because you know what will happen? Yeah, I'll I'll catch a ride. Yeah, you have to work. I have to study. We'll just be here a little while. Before you know it, you're in a position you otherwise wouldn't be in. So here's what good people who do bad things do. They don't close the door on certain options and decisions, listen to me, ahead of time. You decide now. I had a guy in my men's group at the church I pastored. He had a a resolution, a conviction. He was dating a gal, and they were both older adults who'd been through difficult spaces of life, and they had found each other at the church. And they had every time they would date, they'd go to their, their apartment, one of their homes, because it's kind of normal to do that. They had certain things they did, and one of those things is somebody would be headed home by 9 o'clock, before dark. 
we would also have accountability for what was happening while we were at home. Convictions. Not convenient, convictions. Good people who do bad things fail to have convictions. Naive in Proverbs means morally immature. He has no clear moral standards to live by. He's not made up his mind. He's a situational ethicist. He goes with the flow. He's not committed to evil like a bad man. He's just not committed to righteousness like a mature man. He's an open door, which means he's morally seducible, which is what is at the end of verse 7. He lacks sense. Now, it doesn't mean he lacks any ability to think. He lacks spiritual common sense. He doesn't have a moral compass defined by the words of God and convictions that are non-negotiable. Listen, David made up, Daniel rather, Daniel 1.8, made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He made up his mind before the food was brought. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze on a virgin. I decided ahead of time what I would do or would not do, and I'm going to live by those convictions. Resolve and decide in advance non-negotiable moral convictions. Here's a question to ask. Have you resolved in your own heart? And a conviction is a compelling belief. It drives me. Have you decided what you'll do and not do? Number four, good people who do bad things flirt with fire, verse 8. The naive man, the immorally immature, the open-door man, the man without the clear and calibrated moral compass, he lacks sense. He passes through the street near her corner. He takes the way to her house. Good people who do bad things put themselves in the wrong places at the wrong times. Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8, as it refers to the same setting, an adulteress whose mouth drips honey. Verse 7, now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way, what? Far from her. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't flirt with fire. Keep yourself away from opportunities to moral failure. There are certain places that you shouldn't go. Why? Because those places are saturated with moral temptation. Listen, I know the food is cheap in Vegas, but I have a hard time figuring out why we would want to go to Vegas or Mardi Gras, or any of the other Daytona Beach when Harley has their ride in, or what's it, uh, what's the place in, uh, say it again? Sturgis. Sturgis, yeah, thank you. I should know that, but not because I've been there. (laughs) There are certain places where certain things happen. Do you agree with that? Don't flirt with that. I had a architect in my church. He was one of the foremost authorities on the American Disabilities Act. He flew all over the country, probably did Dodger Stadium, San Francisco's field for disabilities, handicap access, CVS pharmacy. Every time he got to a hotel room, he would unplug the cable TV. I said, Jim, why did you do that? He said, I know what happens when I flip channels. 
I don't want to flirt with that. I want to eliminate that option. Good people who do bad things eliminate the options. They don't flirt with fire. They flee fire. Flirting will get you in trouble. I had a ministry colleague who was traveling into Europe for missions, leadership conferences. plane was delayed in Amsterdam, a uh, mechanical problem. The people were allowed to disembark and spend several hours in Amsterdam touring the city to be back at a certain time to continue their flight. He gets off the plane in Amsterdam, never been to Amsterdam. Anybody know what Amsterdam is known for? The red light district, where you window shop for women. He had heard about it, he knew about it, and he got curious about it and wanted to see if it was true. That was a catastrophic decision which changed his life. It changed his ministry. He made a choice that day that nearly destroyed his marriage, took away his ministry opportunity, ended up getting on a different plane, flying home, confessing to his wife. I heard it when he was pulled over on I-65 south of Birmingham because he couldn't drive, because he couldn't see, because of the tears and the frustration and the agony of that decision. He lands in Birmingham. He tells his wife on the way home. They live south of town. They couldn't make it home. I traveled to the interstate, picked them up, carried them to my home. They sat on my porch, and I watched it unfold. And I will tell you this. I've been a pastor a long time. I've never seen pain exceed that of betraying a trust. I've buried young children. I've seen losses of all kinds. None exceed the pain of that. You know how that happened? I think I'll go see. Curiosity not only kills cats, it kills Christians. Good people who do bad things don't flirt with fire, they flee. I want to read something Spurgeon wrote. In contending with certain sins, there remains no mode of victory but by flight. He who would be safe from acts of evil must haste away from occasions of it. A covenant must be made with our eyes not even to look upon the cause of temptation, for such sins only need a spark to begin with, and a blaze follows in an instant. Who would wantonly, listen to this, enter the leper's prison and sleep amid its horrible corruption? Only the one who desires to be leprous himself. This day I may be exposed to great peril. Spurgeon wrote, I pray that I have the serpent's wisdom to keep out of it and avoid it. And the wings of a dove may be of more use to me today than the jaws of a lion. It's better to flee than to flirt. The devil I am to resist, and he will flee from me, but the lust of the flesh, Spurgeon concluded, I must flee, or they will surely overcome me. Decide today, There are places I'll go, and there's places I won't go. I don't care what business deals at risk. I don't care what's expected. I don't care if people roll their eyes and call me a prude. I don't care if they call me all kinds of things, because this integrity, a good name, is to be preferred above great riches. Decide today I'm not going to put myself in certain places with certain people because certain things happen in those places. Number five, why do good people do bad things? 
They're deceived by the darkness. Look at verse 9. In the twilight, that's dusk. In the evening, that's dark. In the middle of the night, that's the darkest part of the night. Literally the pupil of the night. In the middle of the night and in the darkness. He is waiting And the aggressive, immoral woman pursues him in the darkest part of the night. Implication is, no one will see me. Listen to Job chapter 24, verse 15. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. Three things the darkness does, and the first one is it deceives you into thinking no one will know. 74% of the people who fumble the ball morally say they would do so or they did so because they thought they could get away with it. Listen, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. And if he doesn't, God is mocked. What is done in secret will be revealed and declared and shouted from the housetops. That's the revelation of reality. The revelation of reality is people will see. Hey, listen, look at chapter 5, verse 21. Is it true that no one sees? Well, look at, listen to verse 21 of chapter 5. Same context. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress, embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Is it true that nobody sees me? Not true. God sees me. And it's also true, and it's rarely the case, that nobody else will see me. I am shocked at how God reveals what God wants to reveal when He wants to reveal it. I had two guys from my church who went to the home show in Birmingham at the Civic Center, 25,000 people, parking lots full. These guys were friends. They were in a men's group that I was a part of. They didn't go together. They were both contractors. At the end of the day, people are getting in their cars. Thousands of cars are exiting the center city area. Just so happens that Dan pulls out of the parking lot at the same time Jim does. Dan is behind Jim. Jim makes a left, goes to the T in the road, and he makes a right. Dan goes, Jim doesn't live to the right. So Dan follows Jim. Jim travels a mile or two and pulls into a place no Christian should be. Dan pulls up beside him and said, hey, Jim, what are you doing? Now, I want to ask you, what are the chances See, good people do bad things or under the deception that the cloak of darkness will cover me. I can do this in the private of privacy of my office. I can do this in the privacy of another city. Listen, I've been places in airports and parts of the world and somebody goes, Pastor Harry. Like, are you kidding me? I am not John MacArthur. But somehow somebody will know me. The darkness also isolates. I want you to hear this. Accountability is the friend of integrity. You want to proactively create necessary accountability. 
you want to turn the light on. If you can travel with somebody, I've been to Europe many times visiting missionaries, it's a whole different thing when you're traveling with a staff member from your church. You're walking down the streets of Europe which are not safe. You're not tempted at all to go anywhere you shouldn't go because there's somebody with you. That's what you want in your life, accountability. Turn the light on. Don't make somebody tell you to turn the light on. Put the glass in the door. I have an app on my phone called Life360. It's free. I don't get anything for saying this. But if Karen Walls wants to know where Harry Walls is today, she knows I'm standing in this building on Roscoe Boulevard. Now, she can't see in here, but she knows where I am. That's what you want. You want as much accountability. She has my passwords. My secretary has my passwords. I want people to know where I am, what I'm doing. You know why? Because I want to have to figure out a strategy, and you can beat any accountability deal, but I want to make it hard because darkness isolates you, and people isolated are accidents looking for a place to happen. The third thing about darkness that I want to mention, it escalates evil. These are called women of the night. Everybody, anybody been to a day club? Nope, they're night clubs. <laughs> Listen to Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual prom- promiscuity and sensuality. Behave like the lights are on, the sun is shining, and you're fully exposed. Because evil escalates at night. The enemy is the prince of darkness. Wicked things happen when the lights go out. Ever been to the inner city when there's a power outage? People are not doing deeds of virtue. Resolve to turn on and arrange for adequate accountability. Stay in the light. It's dangerous in the dark. Number six, why do good people do bad things? They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of sin. I'm going to say it again. They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of sin. Now, this is the heart of the picture. It's going to have a harlot, a a woman of the night. She's going to be the subject representing moral evil. It's not like women are the only people that are pursuers. Men can be predators. The immoral person is on display. The picture here is an immoral woman typifying the nature of immorality and how it works. Watch the words. Verse Number 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, lurks by every corner. Watch verse 13. She seizes him and she kisses him. Now, I'm calling that aggressive. She's coming out to meet him. She seizes him. She kisses him. Verse 15, therefore, she says, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. Listen, this woman 
is a type and picture of immorality. It comes to meet him, it ceases and kisses, it seeks earnestly, many persuasions. Notice verse 10, she's cunning. Cunning is a prey or predator term. It has the idea of an animal who is tactically stalking. Look over in verse 26 of chapter 6. For an account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. I want you to hear this. Immorality is predatory. It's looking for you whether you're looking for it or not. You can come to Grace Church on any given day, minding your own business, and it lurks by every corner. Did you see that? It's everywhere. There is no safe space. You need to believe you're living in Baghdad, Iraq, somewhere in the Middle East, where anything can be a threat. You leave your home. I'm not trying to make you paranoid. I'm trying to help you understand that you don't have to be looking for immorality. Immorality is pursuing you. I've come out to meet you. She's everywhere. She's one click away on the computer. She's everywhere. You can get in trouble anywhere. You can be propositioned to Disneyland. When I was a pastor in Birmingham, I had my 80-year-old grandmother living with us, latter years of her life, only grandson. She came to live with us. We lived south of the city. She could still drive at that time. She went to the Galleria Mall in Birmingham, came home. It was a Monday. I'm weed-whacking my day off, and I'm working in the yard. She pulls in, comes around the front of the house, greets me. We talk about her shopping, and then she says, Hey, I found this by the car. It was a DVD. It said the Diamond Collection. She said, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a jewelry salesman's promotional thing. And I said, well, okay. I took it, laid it on the steps. She went inside. I carried it upstairs into my living area where my family was living, put it on the top of the uh, AV cabinet, forgot about it. Following Monday, Harry home alone, working in the yard, come up to do devotions to watch Sports Center. I'm teasing. I, I did watch Sports Center, but it's not devotions, but I watched the devotion. And I went back to the audio cabinet and turned the stuff on. I saw the DVD. I went, oh, wonder what that is. Anybody want to guess what it was? The Diamond Collection was graphic pornography. I put it in the DVD player. It came on. It was so shocking. It made me mad. It took me a while to find the button. I took it around the back of the house, and I beat it to death with a ball-peen hammer. You know why? That's not fair. An 80-year-old grandmother gives her pastor grandson a pornographic video. Is that fair? That is not fair, but that's how immorality works. It's aggressive. It's everywhere. And it's appealing. Notice what she says. Notice what she says beginning in verse 14. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Now, just look up for a minute. Let me tell you what she just said. I've been to the worship place. Peace offering had three components. Part of it was offered to God. It was consumed. Another part, the shoulder and the breast, was given to the priest for the ongoing work of the ministry. And the other part of the sacrifice was taken home to be eaten as a festive meal, celebrating peace with God with your family. You know what she's saying? I got food. There's a feast prepared. 
I'm a religious girl. Verse 15, verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings, that's finery, colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon fragrances. It's sweet, it's nice, it's pretty, it's attractive. And she's offering now fulfillment. Come, let us drink our fill. The word is literally intoxicate ourselves with love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. And she's arguing it's going to be free. We got food. We got a nice setup. It's going to be fun. And my husband is not at home. For the man, that's a reference to her husband is not at home. He's going on a long journey, which means we're not going to be exposed. We have freedom and time and opportunity. He's taken a bag of money with him, which means he's going to be gone a long time. At full moon, he will come home. Watch verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. She's aggressive, and the appeal is significant. The thing that I want to point out to you is is that, is she lying? She's not lying. This is an appealing setup, because immorality is always selling something that is attractive. Otherwise, we wouldn't risk anything. You never make a decision in the moment about gratification if you think about it. If Luther used to say, temptation is not a sin to be tempted, but to let the bird build a nest on your head, that's sin. Birds are going to fly over, temptation is going to come, the appeal is going to be made, but you don't think about it, you don't entertain it, you don't measure it by, yeah, this really would be gratifying, this really would be satisfying. You flee that, you don't reflect on that, because it's always appealing. You make decisions based on the lifetime implications, not temporal gratifications. People who get in trouble underestimate the power of the proposition. You need to anticipate the power of that opportunity. You need to be alert. You need to be ready. You need to be head head up, eyes open, armor on, alert. And when it comes, and it will come, you're ready for it. You're protected. The appeal is always powerful and compelling. Sin always looks fulfilling. Resolve and prepare for a powerful proposition. It may not be your 80-year-old grandmother, but it's coming. Don't make a decision based on the moment, but for a lifetime. Number seven, why do good people do bad things? They overlook the obvious Verse 10, her attire is obvious. Behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot. Her attire is obvious. That is, she's conspicuous. Anybody who's in the world in which we live should know this is that kind of girl. Her attitude is obvious. Verse 11, she's boisterous. She's rebellious. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13, she's a woman of folly, says she's loud, she's assertive, she's unrestrained, she has an attitude. Morally integrous women don't dress like unvirtuous women dress. They don't sound, they don't have a spirit. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, modest, gentle, quiet, attitude is reflective of inward character and quality. And her actions are obvious. 
First of all, where she is, verse 12, she's not at home. Listen, at night, you're to be at home, especially in that culture at that time. There are certain times of the night and certain people who are out in those times of the night, they're that kind of person. Her actions are obvious. Where she is, she's not at home. What she does, she seizes and kisses him, and she tries to take him places he otherwise shouldn't go. That should be obvious. The morally immature tend to not see what others clearly see. You know what else I've heard? I didn't know she, he was that kind of guy. I didn't know she was that kind of girl. You know what I've learned, and I think you ought to remember this, and I hope it will help you. When you're engaged in an attraction, you can be subjectively blind. Recruit. Actively seek objective observers. Listen to what other people see because you may be blind to it. You're infatuated. You like that person. But their dress, their attitude, their attire, their actions, disclose what they are and who they are. Good people who do bad things overlook the obvious, and sometimes they're blinded to the obvious. Protect yourself by enlisting allies. Here's a good question to ask of the people that care about you and are involved in your life. This is why you shouldn't be isolated. You need people in your life. God's people are a protection. Anything, this is a question to ask, is there anything or anyone you see that can injure or compromise me? I've asked that that question dozens of times. Of the men in my life, the people in my accountability world, is there anything you see that I may not see? that could injure or compromise me. Is that because Harry's immature? No, it's because Harry's subjective, and I need objective. Good people do bad things, are exposed to subjective attitudes and perspectives that deny them the reality they need. They're gullible, number eight. Why do good people do bad things? They're disarmed by devotion. I touched on it, but I want to reinforce it. She says, I've offered peace offerings. I paid my vows. You know what she just did? She declared herself to be a religiously devout woman. The word cunning, verse 10, is concealed of heart. has the idea of deception. She's cloaked herself with what? The facade of religiosity. She's brazen, verse 13. Do you see it? Verse 13, she seizes him, kisses him, and with a brazen face, she says to him. You know what brazen is? Brazen is a stone face that doesn't disclose the reality of what's going on. It masks reality. She acts... Did I use up my time, Rusty? Was that a clue? That has never phased me that time has gone by. Is my battery dead because I've talked too long? So, don't be deceived by devotion. I don't care whether they go to church with you here. I don't care if they've trained in our seminary. Listen, people who parade as religious 
can take down potential concerns or sensitivities because you grant them trust. Listen, you should trust me, but not enough to allow me to ask you to do something that is not right for a Christian to do. It's why spiritual leaders get in trouble. They take advantage of their perceived trust. And it's why people who are under their trust fall victim to their statements or their words or their actions because nobody like Harry could do something they shouldn't do. That's a lie and a deception that'll destroy you. Don't be deceived by apparent devotion. Apparent piety can be the path to impurity. Don't be pacified by apparent piety. Surely this can't be wrong if this religious person is promoting it and willing to do it. Beware of any voice, though from the most revered quarter, that manifestly encourages carnal indulgence. Listen, discount outward devotion. It may be a mask to deceive. There are wolves in sheep's clothing in every church. Religious people aren't necessarily righteous people. Discount outward devotion. When I uh, was here at the university back in the 80s, I was traveling to a baseball game with uh, Dr. MacArthur, and we were going to watch Matt play, and he, it was right after the Jimmy Swaggart scandal. Do you remember that name? Evangelist on TV ended up with... Some gal, not his wife, on the coast of the, the uh, of Florida, and we were traveling to the ball game. And John said something to me I've never forgotten. I want to say it to you. He said, "Harry, you cannot compartmentalize carnality, which means that you, when you see things that are carnally indulgent, somebody's too interested in their look or their the the purchase of things that's carnal. You can't." compartmentalize carnality. If you see leaking, carnal leaking, you know, they tell the jokes they shouldn't tell. They laugh at the things they shouldn't laugh at. There's innuendo. There's carnality. If carnality is present, look for leaking carnality as an indicator that this person, no matter how they describe themselves or present themselves, are not trustworthy. So I want to encourage you to not be deceived by devotion because you're aware of the potential contradictions, carnal contradictions of word or deed. Number nine, why do good people do bad things? They're exposed by their ego. I want to point out one key word in this passage that is connected to this point, and it's the word flatter. Verse 5 that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Verse 15. Watch what she says. I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Don't overlook this. She's saying, I was looking for you. Out of all the guys, I was looking for you. That's what pornography does. Pornography is an illusion that says, I'm looking for you. I want you. She may not want you, but I want you. Notice what it says in verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. 
The word flattery means to inflate. It can be translated smooth. There's smooth talking, but the goal of the smooth talk is to inflate the ego, the heart. To tell me what I want to hear, to elevate my sense of esteem, to take advantage of me. Flattery is what I tell you to get from you what I want from you. Flattery is manipulative and it inflates the ego. I want you. I was looking for you. Out of all the men in the world or all the women in the world, I wanted you. Man, my wife's not like you. Flattery is an effort to connect to a need to strengthen your sense of identity, your ego, your value. You're somebody. Now, I want to say this to you, and I want you to hear it. You are vulnerable to moral failure when life isn't working at home or you don't have a sense of value either coming from your spouse or from your workplace. You're the preacher who preaches and your people aren't appreciative. You're hurting of heart and you're vulnerable for the person who will inflate your sense of value. Find your value in legitimate ways. My spouse, my wife, as wonderful as she is, is not the validator of my value. What you think about me as a teacher or as a preacher is not the validation of my value. My job, my car, where I live. No, what validates my value is I am made in the image of God and I have been ransomed at great price through the work of grace. I'm a son of God. I have value and I will like it if you say, Harry, that helped me. I like it if Karen will say, I love you and you're the greatest guy on the planet. But it's not necessary to be safe in terms of who I am and what I am. Can you say amen to that? If you seek your value through things outside of you and not the truth about you as defined by God, your ego is exposed. And somebody will tell you what you want to hear and it feels really good. And maybe the person you live with or married to or the people in your life don't validate your value. She does. He does. And the next thing you know, you're inflated and exposed. Get help for the hurting heart. Life's hard. People get sick, marriages don't work, children go astray, people get fired, people overlook you. There are a lot of things that can happen that injure your heart. Validate yourself in valid ways, biblically valid ways. Can you say amen to that? Listen, you may not be the prettiest girl or the most athletic guy, or the smartest person, or the person who receives the most commendation, but in the eyes that matter. If John MacArthur calls Harry Walls a good preacher, I really don't care what you say. Do you understand that? It's not because I don't care about you. If he says I can preach... Now listen, the God of everything says you're valuable. It doesn't matter what they say. Did you say amen to that? This may be the heart of it all. Immorality is the affirmation that I'm something that I'm not sure I am. Number 10. Why do good people do bad things? I'm coming to the end. There's not 20. 
Number 10, good people who do bad things are inclined to be impulsive. I want you to notice a key word in verse 9, verse 22, rather. Suddenly. That literally is in the blink of an eye. Suddenly he follows her. The implication of this is he hadn't made up his mind, but in the moment, with the temptation at hand, in the blink of an eye, in an impulsive decision, it's not a well-thought-out decision, it's not a restrained decision, it's not let me think about it, it's suddenly he follows her. Good people who do bad things, the morally immature, don't dominate their desires and they make impulsive decisions. Cultivate discipline by saying no when you can say yes. You know where you do that? At the buffet. (laughs) When you can have one more piece, when you can have one more helping. It's legitimate. You paid for it. You can have it. Say no to it. That's not only good for this, it's good for this. Because when you, that's why fasting can be very helpful. It's not just a spiritual exercise, it's a physical discipline. Do you know that physical appetite trumps sexual appetite? It does. And if you can rule dominant over the desires of your desire to eat, you have greater potential of exercising discipline over other appetites. Notice what it says in Verse 25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Exercise self-control. Self-control is discipline. It's the ability to say no when you can say yes. Buffet your body, not buffet your body, but buffet it. (laughs) Dominate its desires. I'm going to argue you need to say no more than you say yes. Because you'll be tempted to say yes when you need to say no and you need to have the ability to restrain desires. Interrupt your impulsiveness. Walk away. Number 11, good people do bad things are convinced they won't get caught. They receive assurance that nobody will know. Verse 19, the man is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's not coming back soon. He's got a long business trip. There's no accountability, not at home and not for a long time. It's the reason why people say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The implication of that is nobody will know. There's no accountability, no consequences. It's anonymous. The whole Ashley Madison community, the internet adulter site, you know, where you, you, you interact anonymously. Nobody will know. Somebody hacked it. Everybody got to know. People committed suicide. Pastors committed suicide when they were exposed by what had been going on online. Don't underestimate the consequences. Be sure your sins will find you out. Don't assume you won't get caught. Actually, assume I will get caught. Number 12, they do not ponder the possibility and the probability. Good people who do bad things think this can't happen to me. 
Notice what verse 26 does for you. Yes, it could. For many are the victims she's cast down. Many. If David can go down, Harry can go down. If some of the notables in my spiritual life can go down, I can go down. Nobody's immune. Nobody's insulated. Many are the victims she has cast down. And numerous are her slain. Many and numerous. Many strong men have fallen. If they can, so can you. The potential of failure, listen to this, is greater than not. That's sobering. Be smart. Finish well. Resolve and count the fallen. Finally, we're at the end. Number 13, they do not consider the cost. That's blatant and plain in verse 22. He follows her as an ox to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. Watch the words. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. Verse 27, her house is the way to Sheol, that's the grave, descending to the chambers of death. Chapter 6, verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry, and when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Go over to chapter 5. Keep your way, verse 8, from... Her, that's the adulteress, do not, the immoral person, do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your vigor, that's physical, to others, your physical life and strength, your years to the cruel one, lest strangers be filled with your strength, that's material, your hard-earned goods, go to the house of an alien. Verse 11, emotional, you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, this is regret, how I have hated instruction, my heart spurned reproof. In other words, I should have listened. I was callous and willful. Verse 14, I was almost in utter ruin and in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. In other words, I was exposed. I was humiliated. I almost got to the end. Those are all consequences. And good people who do bad things do not consider the consequences. I want to ask you a question, and I'm wrapping up. All of these things about death, dying, material loss, personal loss, is this hyperbole or reality? You know what hyperbole is? It's an exaggerated statement. Is this true or not true? It's true. You lose aspects of life. You injure things. I cannot tell you how many. I wish I hadn't have done this. I wish this hadn't. I wish somebody would have told me what you were saying. I have paid the price. The price is high. Listen, if she had said, you can spend the night with me, but I need to tell you I have AIDS. What do you think he would have done? Because consequences would have been abundantly clear. 
And there are spiritual AIDS consequences to every moral decision that violates the integrity that is expected of a child of God. Count the consequences. Because the enemy hides. You can't watch TV and see adulterous people pay consequences. They don't. It's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. And the losses are heavy and the losses are real. And it's not hyperbole. It's reality. He knows not that it will cost him his life. Now listen, you may be here today and you may have lived a good bit of what we just described. And you're going, yep, that's me. I'm paying a price I can't ever seem to get away from. Let me just say this to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves sinners and cleanses from all unrighteousness. You may lose things, but God can restore value and benefit to a broken life. My worship pastor at my former church violated his vows. I sat in his living room confronting him, having learned of that. It was not one violation, it was many. He did not want to tell me the truth and the whole truth. I knew more than he knew I knew. I asked him, tell me the truth. He didn't want to tell me the truth because he was trying to do damage control, which is what everybody always does. But damage control will not set you free. The truth will set you free. And I said to him, I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 50. I said, so here's the deal. You have three teenage children right now. You're going to leave them zero legacy. But if you tell the truth, you repent, and you live out the discipline necessary to be restored with integrity, you can leave your children a legacy that they'll never have unless you repent. Tell the truth. You know what he did? He had to move out of his home. He lived in a little mobile home. He lost his role in ministry. He's recharging fire extinguishers for two years, living this humble life of loss. He repented. His children rejected everything he stood for. They watched him recover. They watched him change. They watched the gospel of grace work. They, he watched, they watched him submit and follow. Twenty years later, as I stand here today, you can look at a picture of his family. He did lose his wife. She couldn't trust him. She divorced him. But all of his children are following the Lord, and he's following the Lord honoring the Lord in ministry that God has given him, not the same one, but valid influence because of the integrity and the the testimony of a repentant, humbled life. Listen, you can fumble, and there may be great consequences. I'm asking you to avoid them, but if you've lived them, repent tell the truth, deal with it, and let God rebuild through the gospel of grace. Can you say amen to that? Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Humble yourself and let God restore you so you leave something instead of nothing. Father, thank you for the opportunity to 
share this passage today. And I know we've been here a while and it's pregnant with truth. And I just pray that we will benefit, that we'll be hearers and doers, that you'll protect us, you'll restore us, you'll strengthen us, and you will use us as credible agents of influence who enjoy the presence of God, the power of God, and the fruit of godliness. Who can dwell in the presence of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The greatest loss is not our life. It's the life that's truly life. Intimacy with you. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.